We are privileged this morning to have a dear friend of mine, Minister of the Word, Dr. Larry McCall. And for those of you who have been to the grandparenting seminars, you need no introduction to Larry because he ministered wonderfully to us. But for those who were not there, let me, I'm going to read his bio, his official bio, and then I will have a few uh, personal comments to mention about Larry. Says Larry McCall, the author of Grandparenting with Grace, Living the Gospel with Next Generation, as well as Loving Your Wife as Christ Loves the Church and Walking with Jesus, serves as the director of Walking Like Jesus Ministries. Larry was gripped by God's saving grace at an early age and had the amazing privilege of being discipled by his parents and by other mentors in his home, in his home church. In 1975, Larry married Gladine, his sweetheart since high school days. They have, uh, they have three married children and seven much-loved grandchildren. Larry's had the joy of serving on the pastoral team of Christ Covenant Church of Winona Lake, Indiana, since 1981. Larry was actually the pastor teacher there until recently and now one of the elders. He's a graduate of Grace College, Grace Theological Seminary, and has a doctor of ministry degree from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He gets his batteries charged in serving Christ followers through his speaking and writing ministry, helping them see in clear, practical, gospel-centered ways how to pursue Christ and reflect him in daily life. And that really describes Larry. I have known Larry and Gladine. Michelle and I have been friends with them for over 25 years. Larry and I have ministered together in conferences in Italy and in other places in the United States doing leadership training for chaplains. And he is a dear, dear friend. I have preached at his church in Winona Lake, Indiana, and I actually forgot in the, until recently that Larry has actually been here and ministered probably about 2006 in our missions conference. So it's great to have him back. But I do want to say this, that when I think of Larry McCall, I think of someone who is gracious, kind, sweet. And I was describing him to Joel Purcell recently, and I said, you've read Jerry Bridges, and you know how gracious Jerry Bridges was in his writings and in his his own life. I said, Larry McCall is what you would imagine Jerry Bridges to be if he were a pastor. So I will say this, that uh, Larry is a dear man. I paid him maybe one of the greatest compliments I have ever given anyone after hearing him speak about grandparenting. I said, I wish you could be my grandpa. I think it'd be hard. I think I might be a little older than Larry, but um, but you get the, the point. So let's welcome, give a warm lakeside welcome to Larry McCall. Thank you, Stevie. <laughs> I, I've never had anyone my age say that before. <laughs> It is a delight to be back with you at Lakeside, and for those of you grandparents who are at the Grandparenting Seminar, Grandparenting with Grace Seminar, Friday night and Saturday, Gladine and I enjoyed immensely our time with you. That time was a delight, studying God's Word together, thinking of applications of God's Word in our lives as grandparents, impacting the coming generation with the gospel. It was a delight. Yeah, I realize that not everyone here is a grandparent. Some of you, grandparenting is decades and decades away. And yet, all of us had grandparents. And I would guess that the great majority of us remember our grandparents. And maybe we remember something that our grandparents taught us. 
Do you remember something a grandparent taught you? It might have been just some particular skill. Maybe a grandparent taught you how to make really good chocolate chip cookies. If that's the case, let me know where you live and I'll come by and verify. Um, or maybe how to catch the biggest fish. Or maybe you had a grandparent teach you some life lesson that's actually very important. Maybe your grandparent looked you in the eye one day and taught you the importance of keeping your word. Or maybe one of those life skills that gets lost, how do you politely meet someone for the first time? You know, maybe when we were young, we didn't appreciate that much what our grandparent or another older person was teaching us. And yet now when we look back, we see that that was really helpful. You know, the older I get, the more I appreciate the input of that older person, maybe that grandparent in my life. All of us here today, all of us adults here today, have kids in our lives. For some of you, those kids are sitting right beside you right now. Some of you are parents, you're rearing your children right now. Some of us are grandparents, some of us have nieces, nephews, and even if you don't have biological children in your life, you live in a church family that has kids, right? And there are kids here at Lakeside that you have a relationship with, or you could have a relationship with. When you think of the young people in your life, the kids, the teens in your life, what are you teaching them? What could you be teaching them? Yeah, we can teach them those skills, how to make great chocolate chip cookies or how to catch fish or maybe something our grandparents never could teach us is we can teach the younger generation techie things. Now, stop to think about it. They should be teaching us those things. <laughs> or, or maybe we could be pouring in those lessons that were taught to us about keeping our word or... or um, how to meet someone politely for the first time. But when you think of all the things you could be teaching the kids, the teens in your life, what would you say is one of the most important things you could teach the coming generation? If you were to think of all the possibilities out there, what would you say would be central? Or we might say foundational. What is one of the most foundational things you and I can teach the coming generation? How about this one from Psalm 3411, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's Psalm 3411, and I invite you, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you in print or electronically, to join me in Psalm 34. You know, when I said the fear of the Lord, I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this, but, but I just... I just kind of wonder, when I said, what's one of the most important things you can teach the coming generation as an adult? You looked at the little ones, the young ones. I wonder what percentage of people said, oh, I know the fear of the Lord. That's a topic that doesn't usually rise to the forefront today. You don't hear about the fear of the Lord very much. And yet, did you know that the fear of the Lord, there's not some obscure subject kind of tucked into the back closets of the Old Testament. Do you want to guess how many times in the Bible the phrase fear of the Lord appears, both old and new together? How many times in the Bible do we see the phrase fear of the Lord? It's over 150 times. Over 150 times in the Bible we read the phrase fear of the Lord. Now I wouldn't call something like that an obscure topic, would you? 
Let's read Psalm 34, the first 11 verses. This is the word of God. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and went away. Here's the song that David wrote. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So what are we talking about? What are we talking about when we talk about the fear of the Lord? What does that mean? Let me be candid. I would guess that most of us have a fairly foggy idea of what the fear of the Lord is. It's not a common topic people talk about today. And very few people have read books on the fear of God. Do you know how I know that? Because there are very few books on the fear of God. There's very few books on the fear of God in print. You go back to John Bunyan's day, the man that wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote a book on the fear of God. But if you look back over the last few generations, I can only think of a handful of books on the fear of God. One of them is one of my favorites. Pastor Steve mentioned Jerry Bridges. He was a mentor and a dear friend. But Jerry wrote a book called The Joy of Fearing God. I love that title, The Joy of Fearing God. So if you would like to dive further into this topic, let me commend his book to you. The joy of fearing God. I think sometimes when we bring up the topic of the fear of God, we kind of step back a little bit and we feel kind of cautious. You know, we feel like maybe we're walking on eggshells. Um, we don't want to offend people. We don't want to scare people thinking we're talking about some sort of celestial bully. And so we try to soften our language. We try to soften our descriptions. And, and we say, well, you know, the fear of God just means you respect him. You know, just respect God. Well, as I think about that, you know, you can think of a lot of people that are worthy of respect. Maybe an elderly aunt of yours. You say, aunt so-and-so, now, there's a woman to respect. Or maybe a very gifted school teacher you know, and you say, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, now, there's someone I can respect. Or maybe in the public realm, you think of someone like the late Queen of England, you say, there is a woman worthy of respect. You know, but when you think about God, would you put God on the same level as your elderly aunt or a school teacher or even the Queen of England? I mean, God is infinite. God is sovereign. God's omnipotent. God's omniscient. God's in a category all of his own. So how can we just say merely that fearing God means to have a respect for him? 
Even though it's difficult to get a grip on the fear of God, even though it's difficult to put into words what we're talking about with the fear of God, I think one of the most helpful things we can do is look in the Bible at people who encountered God, as it were, face to face. When people saw God face to face, how did they respond? Pastor Steve read that phenomenal passage, that profound passage in Isaiah 6 earlier, where Isaiah the prophet was in the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And remember that description that Pastor Steve read to us a little while ago from Isaiah 6, how the Lord was high and lifted up. And these angelic beings, these seraphim, uh, were flying above the throne room of God and they were crying out to one another antiphonally, Holy, 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 over and over. And he says the pillars of the temple, the threshold were shaking. The train of his royal robe was so great it was filling the temple. The place was filled with smoke. And did Isaiah say, you know what, I think I could learn to respect him. Isaiah said, whoa, whoa am I, whoa am I. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among these people of unclean lips. And when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he was undone. He was overwhelmed. And God had to treat him with his grace by purifying him. And I think going to the New Testament of old John, John the Apostle, out there on the island of Patmos in exile. Now, remember that the Apostle John was one of Jesus' closest friends when he had his earthly ministry. If you were to name some of Jesus' closest friends, maybe a handful of people that you would say knew Jesus the best during his earthly ministry, John would make the cut. John would make the list. This man knew Jesus. But that day, out on the island of Patmos, God in His kindness gave John a, a vision of the glorified Jesus Christ. The glorified Jesus Christ. And he writes this to the seven churches, and he's trying to describe in human words what he saw. And I read this passage from Revelation 1, and what strikes me, what grips me, is that John is... He's trying to describe the indescribable, so he's, he's grasping, he's grabbing for simile. He's looking for metaphor, for descriptors of how do I put into human words what I saw that day when I saw the glorified Jesus Christ. And, and I realize I'm sticking my neck out here, but I would ask for some liberty, for some poetic license to read... John's description of what he saw that day, the way I imagine he would say it if he were standing here in front of you at Lakeside today. This is the way I imagine John trying to tell us what he saw that day. Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head, they were white. They were white, like, like wool, like, like snow. And his eyes, his eyes were like 
They were like a flame of fire in his feet. His, his, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice, his voice was, it was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like, it was, it was like the sun shining in, in, in its full strength. And do you know what John reports next? He said, when I saw him, I fell down as though dead. Friends, this is one of Jesus' closest friends. But when he saw the glorified Jesus Christ, he was undone. He melted in the presence of the glorified Jesus Christ. He responded in the fear of God. Friends, we haven't even taken time to think about other people that encountered God face to face, people like Moses or or Job. I read that in my devotions this morning where Job says, when God confronted him, well, Job, where, where were you when I made the earth? And you know what Job said? I put my hand over my mouth. Why did I even open my mouth when he saw God? I felt so humbled, so broken. When people came face to face with God, they ended up face down. How do we describe, how do we define the fear of God? I have a lot of respect for Sinclair Ferguson. A godly man, a gifted man. But even he tries to come up with a definition and one of his first words is indefinable. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ferguson. That indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what He has done for us. And here's my own suggested definition. The fear of God is that overwhelming, soul-gripping awe of God of who God is and what He has done that profoundly affects the attitude of one's heart and the actions of one's life. Let's ask another question. Why is the fear of the Lord one of the most important lessons we can teach the next generation? Why would that be so important? Of all the things we could teach our kids, our grandkids, nieces, nephews, kids here at the church, of all the things we could teach them, why would we zero in on this? Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Why that? The painful truth is that people, all people, yes you, yes me, our children, yes, even our grandchildren, are born self-centered. And as a grandparent, I know when I teach on grandparenting, this is sometimes difficult for grandparents to accept. My granddaughter is a sweet little thing. I call her my angel. <laughs> She's born a sinner. <laughs> Ouch. Now, that's a clear teaching of the Bible. We spent time on that subject over the weekend, those of us who were at the grandparenting seminar. But let me just give you a human, everyday illustration. 
You've had a two-year-old in your life at some point. Maybe you have a two-year-old in your life right now. Let's pick on the boys. Let's imagine there's a two-year-old boy in your life. And I'll put myself in the situation of being the grandfather here. The, the grandkids call me Papa. So I'll pick on one of my grandsons when he's two years old. And I'll say, hey, buddy, Papa wants to teach you something. This is an important lesson in life. And if I don't teach you, I don't know how you're going to get it. So look at Papa. And look me in the eye, buddy. Two-year-old, right? Look me in the eye. Now listen to me. I'm going to say something, and then I want you to repeat it. You ready? Listen to Papa. Mine! Okay, now, now you say that, buddy. Or how about this one? You listening to me, buddy? Look me in the eye. I'll say it, then you say it. No! Remember teaching your two-year-old that? You didn't have to, did you? You, you didn't have to teach your two-year-old to do that. Do you know why? Because it happens so naturally. A synonym would be it happens so, I heard people saying it, sinfully. Where did that come from? That two-year-old got it from his parents. Who 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 got it from his parents. The whole way back to... Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, we read this, where the serpent said to Eve, listen to this, listen to this. The serpent said to Eve, for God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, the forbidden fruit, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. How did that turn out? Do you see what the serpent was convincing Eve of? Why be a servant of God? Why be God's prince and princess? When you could be king and queen. Why be a servant of God when you could be your own God? Be your own God. And Eve bought, Eve bit. Satan's lie. And the painful truth is that every human being who has ever been born since, with the exception of Jesus Christ, has been born self-centered, foolishly, listen, foolishly assuming that he has the right to self-determination, self-direction, self-identification, self-governance. And the inborn assumption is either that God doesn't exist, or if he does exist, he's kind of a commodity over there on the sidelines of life that I can tap into if I need him. I mean, he's here for my sake, and I need his help, I can always reach out to him, right? But in the meantime, I'm going to chart my own course in life. I'm going to determine my own sense of what's true, what's false, what's right, what's wrong. I'm going to determine my own identity in life. I'm going to govern my own life. It's, it's my life. Every one of us was born that way. And the children in your life, apart from God's intervening grace, that's the way they see life. And this sinful, and this is where it gets even more difficult, this sinful perspective that children are born with, all children, is not only tolerated in our current culture, but that is today taught, celebrated, and passionately defended 
Today's children are encouraged to, and I'm using quotes, decide what's right for yourself. Be true to yourself. Find your own sexual identity. And that deceptively innocuous sounding, follow your own heart. And anyone who challenges that, anyone who challenges that dominant paradigm in our current culture, is not only dismissed, but despised. You have no right to tell someone else how to live. Everybody has a right to determine his own truth, his own morality, his own identity, his own course in life. Everybody has a right to determine his own way, and you have no right to tell someone else that God's going to tell them how to live. Have you ever wondered why people get so vociferous, so vehement, whenever Christians say, God says such and such? It's because we're touching on a core belief that every child's been born with since that dreadful day in the Garden of Eden. That it's my life. And I can chart my own course in life. And yet, how does that work? Look, look around. Look within. Look around at how the world is today. Whenever we build our lives chart our course in life under this assumption that I'm at the center. I can determine my own truth. I can determine my own morality, my own identity. Whenever each individual does that, everything gets screwed up. Everything gets screwed up. Our view of life, our view of eternity, it all gets screwed up. A lot of people are familiar with Romans 3.23. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Have you ever looked at that verse in context? In Romans 3? The Apostle Paul there, by the Holy Spirit's direction, is choosing snippets from the Old Testament. Today they'd be called sound bites. <laughs> He's choosing these snippets from the Old Testament and he puts them in a list. And then he summarizes. Let me just read with you. His list. This is Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. And how does the apostle summarize this dreadful list? You can say it with me out loud if you want. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so when the apostle there by the Holy Spirit's direction, is summarizing the mess we're in. When he's summarizing how screwed up everybody is apart from God's intervening grace, he summarizes by that phrase. He says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. So what's the solution? What's the antidote? 
The book of Proverbs has a foundational statement at the beginning that explains this whole collection of wise sayings. And in Proverbs 1-7, we read this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now remember, this is a dad writing this for his sons. And he's going to collect for them this collection of wise sayings of how to live life, how to plan for eternity. And he tells us his theme by that phrase right at the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, if you're going to understand kids that are here today, listen to me, please. If you're going to understand anything in life, pick a subject. If you're going to understand anything in life properly, you have to begin with God. God is not only the creator of all that exists, He is the definer of all that exists. He explains what is true, what is false, what is moral, what is immoral. He defines everything. If we want to understand His creation properly, we begin with Him. Proverbs 9.10 supplements Proverbs 1.7 where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so if your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, nephews, the kids in this church are going to understand anything properly, they must see who God is. They must hear what God said. And they must rely on the direction he has given. I'm a simple person. I need simple things to help me remember the important things in life. And I think of how Paul ends Romans 11 with that doxology. And I memorized it one time this way. that For from him and through him and to him are all things. Think about that one sentence. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So everything that exists, everything tangible, everything intangible, everything that exists is from God. And it is sustained through the providence of God, and it is for His glory, it is to Him. And so, if we're going to understand anything properly, we need to look at the world around us, we need to look at ourselves in the mirror, and say, everything is from Him. He's the owner, the author of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. Everything is through Him. And He is the end goal of all things. He is the one to be glorified. Everything is to Him. Life and eternity don't center around you or me. They center around God. When our kids were growing up, I used to tell them one of the most important things you can learn in life is this. He is God and you're not. (laughs) And neither am I. (laughs) He is God and you're not. If you lose sight of that, everything gets screwed up. Your perspective on truth, morality screwed up, your life gets screwed up, and enough people are screwed up, the whole culture gets screwed up, right? 
So how are children, how is the next generation going to learn the fear of God? Well, it needs to be implanted in their hearts by God himself. For a child, a teenager, or an adult to live with a God-centeredness, a fear of God, he has to give them a new heart. They're born with a sinful heart that leans away from God, actually runs away from God. God's got to give them a new heart. Eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that feels for God. And God promised in the new covenant, this is Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40. God said in that promise of the new covenant, He said, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Listen, I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good, for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they might not turn from me. So for the children, the teens, the adults to live with the fear of God, the centrality of God in our thinking, our morality, our actions, God has to give us that in our hearts. So for those of us that are older, when you pray for your children, your grandchildren, what do you pray? I mentioned to the grandparents at the seminar this past weekend that when I listen to fellow grandparents pray for their grandkids, and when I listen to my own prayers sometimes, what dominates the prayers of grandparents is safety and success. Just keep my grandkids safe from all those bad things out there and give them success on the athletic field and academia, in their jobs, whatever. And that's not wrong, but friends, let's, let's elevate our prayers. Let's pray big, bold prayers for our kids. Why don't we pray, Lord, give my grandson, give my granddaughter, give my son, my daughter, niece, nephew, give that child, give that teen a new heart. A new heart that loves you. A new heart that fears you. A new heart that wants to please you in all of life. God must do His miracle of grace if our children are going to live with the fear of God. But friends, that doesn't mean that we go passive. We're agents in the hand of God, tools in the hand of God to reach the coming generation for His glory. And clear back in the book of Deuteronomy, right toward the end of Deuteronomy, as Moses is preparing to die, he gathers this new generation of Israelites and he gives them some important lessons to carry with them into the promised land. Listen to Moses. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and to be careful to do all the works of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. So the fear of the Lord can be learned. If it can be learned, it can be taught. So how do we adults teach the younger generation the fear of the Lord? How do we do that? How do we teach the coming generation the fear of the Lord? Well, let me say, first of all, learn. I'm talking to us adults. Learn. Use your mind. Use your mind. As Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn all you can about God. You can't give the kids what you don't have. You can't give them what you don't have. 
And so if you're going to teach them about God, if you're going to teach them the centrality of God, if you're going to teach them the fear of God, there needs to be enough in here, your head, your heart. So make it a life habit to saturate your mind, your heart in the Word of God. And when you read the Word of God, when you hear the Word of God, make sure you're paying attention to learn about Him. Lots of times we read the Bibles looking for ourselves. What God, what's God want me to do today? And the Bible certainly does impact our lives, but excuse me, the Bible's not about you, ultimately. It's about God. And so when you read your Bible, look for Him. What can you learn about God, His attributes? And then use your words, use your mind. Secondly, use your words. Teach, teach the younger generation about the fear of the Lord. Intentionally, faithfully pass it on. You might have planned times, those of you that have kids in the home, I hope you have planned times of teaching your children the Word of God. When our children were young, we usually used bedtime. Right before bed, we would spend time in the Word of God together. When they got older, different ones are on different schedules, we shifted to early morning. <laughs> but you look for time, so it'll work for your family and have planned times. I think, I almost want to say more important than that, is have a culture in your home where the Word of God is central. That you're applying the Word of God to your children, just as you do life. You're teaching them things, you're disciplining them, whatever it is. You're bringing God to bear. You're, you're giving your children teaching that shows that God is the center of everything. Son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, I love you. But you're not at the center of the universe. God is. And so you live in this culture in your home that, that you're always teaching them about God and how great he is and how gracious he is. Use your words. But then thirdly, model it. Use your life. As the coming generation looks at you, you've been telling them God is the center. God is at the center of all things. God is the creator of all things. God is the definer of all things. God's the sustainer of all things. You're teaching the young generation about God, that everything revolves around God. When they watch the way you live, is your life going to enhance your words or diminish your words? Are the kids looking at you saying, Oh, I hear what you're saying, and, and I see it, because that's the way you live. You live, Dad, you live, Mom, you live, Grandpa, Grandma, centered on God. As if God's the most important one in your life. So you model that before the coming generation. If we're going to teach the coming generation the fear of the Lord, what are the benefits? How might this actually benefit the coming generation? Let me give you several this morning. First, the fear of the Lord gives perspective. It gives perspective on life and eternity. Psalm 111 verse 10 assures us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. If you want the coming generation, if you want the kids, the teens, if you want yourself, to understand life better, to understand what's important, what isn't important, What's temporary? What's eternal? What really matters? What's true? What's false? What's moral? What's immoral? Then teach them the fear of God. Teach them the fear of the Lord. That gives perspective. It, it puts things in the right context. 
Secondly, another benefit of the fear of the Lord, it stirs resolve to resist temptation and to live for God's glory. Proverbs 14.27 teaches us, The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. My adult friends in the room, you know and I know, we remember our own youth, where the world is constantly pushing on us and pulling on us to go with the flow. There's a particular flow in this world that says every individual is his own God. Determine your own truth, determine your own morality, determine your own identity. I don't know that people actually say this, but this is the point. You're your own God. That's the current we live in. That is the culture we live in, the flow we live in. And that world that we live in is pulling on your kids, pushing on your kids through friendship, through teaching in schools, through, through media. Just go with the flow. Just determine your own life. And if you are going to have kids in your life, children, teens in your life that swim upstream against the culture, they're going to need help. They're going to need encouragement. They're going to need, no, that's not the truth. That's not reality. The reality that God is central. And I want to listen to Him. And I want to obey Him. I want to go with God. I want Him to be at the center of my life. As the adults, we need to be teaching them the fear of God so that they can resist the push and the pull of the cultural around us. And so that they can swim upstream, as hard as it is, they can swim upstream against this culture's views so that they can be faithful to God and live a life of integrity, a life of insight. A third benefit is the fear of the Lord brings joy and freedom Psalm 34 verses 8 and 9 say, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. Those who fear Him have no lack. Friends, I've been thinking about this. The culture around us is teaching our kids, you're your own God. You determine your own truth, your own morality, your own identity, whatever it is. And they're implying to this child, this teen, in essence, be your own God. The kids in our lives were never created to carry that weight. Satan was lying to Eve. He was lying to Eve and he's lying to your children. They were never designed to be God. Only God is designed to... He's not designed, he is God. Only God can be God. But when our culture says, in essence, be your own God, a weight is put upon these kids that they've got to figure things out. They've got to look within themselves and try to figure out what's true and what isn't. What matters and what doesn't matter. Who they are. What their sexual identity is. That's a weight that the children were never designed to carry. But whenever children are gripped by God's saving grace, and whenever they're taught by the adults in their life the centrality of God in all of life, there is freedom because they're listening to the voice of their creator, their, their loving creator who says, this is who you are. You're mine. This is who I designed you to be. I've shown you the way of truth. I've shown you the way of morality. Here's the way. Walk in it. And when the young people, when we adults see that, there is such freedom. There is such joy. There's great benefit in the fear of the Lord. If we 
see and believe what we've been learning this morning, then each of us adults can look at the children in our lives, whether they're your own children, your grandchildren, kids here in the church, and say with David, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I realize in a group this large and others listening online, there might be people, there are people, of various ages who have yet to bend the knee to Jesus Christ. Who are still living under the deception of the serpent, that you're your own God. You're the determiner of your own truth, your own morality, your own identity. What a heavy load to carry. And I was reading in Jeremiah chapter 2, and a certain word caught my attention. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19 The prophet says, your wickedness will bring its own punishment. Your turning from me will shame you. You will see what an evil, bitter thing it is to abandon the Lord your God and not to fear him. I, the Lord, the Lord of heaven armies have spoken. You will see what an evil, bitter thing it is to abandon the fear of God. And so if you're here today and you're still in the flow, you're still in the flow of thinking, it's my life. I want to lovingly encourage you today to evaluate how that's going to turn out. The Word of God says that that's an evil, bitter thing. So why continue down the path of bitterness when Christ says, come to me, come to me, commands, come to me. All you are weary, all of you are burdened down. And I'll give you rest. Why don't you turn from the path of bitterness and turn to Christ today? I'm going to pray for us in a minute, but I know that I speak on behalf of your leaders here, your pastors here, that if any of you want to talk farther about the condition of your own soul, your pastors here, some of the other adults in this church would be glad to talk to you. I'll hang around afterwards, too, if I can serve you that way. But don't let today pass without turning from the path of bitterness to the way of freedom in Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. If you hadn't given us your revelation, we would never know you. We would never understand ourselves. We would never understand how to be right with you through your son, Jesus Christ. So thank you for sending him. Thank you for giving us the written word that we can understand. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit that applies your truth to our lives. And Lord, I want to pray first of all for the people listening to my voice today that are still on the path of bitterness. Would you in your loving, sovereign grace reach out and give them eyes to see your glory in the face of your son Jesus? Would you give them ears to hear the good shepherd's voice calling their name? And would you give them a new heart, a heart that fears you? And Lord, I want to pray for the adults, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, Sunday school teachers, school teachers, all the people in this church that have kids in their lives. Help us to remember that one of the most important things you want us to teach the coming generation is to fear you. Thank you for Lakeside. Thank you for the shepherds you've given this church. And I pray that in the coming years, there might be another generation rise up that excels the current generation in grace and passion. 
May the coming generation love you more deeply and spread your word more broadly. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.